0: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know how to help you. Now, here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
1: Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Pham. He is known as the Money Ninja. Uh, we're going to learn all kinds of ways to make money, save money, and spend money. His website is themoneyninja.com. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, John.
2: Hi, Jordan. Thank you, everyone. to be here.
1: a brief uh, history of how you got to be the money ninja that you are today.
2: (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, I think it comes from my childhood, right? Both my parents uh, immigrated from Vietnam during the war and basically came here with essentially nothing besides the clothes on their back. Uh, And I've seen them, you know, growing up, uh, being very entrepreneurial, very careful with their finances, stretching their dollar, and even later in life, as they became more successful, more wealthy... A lot of these finance principles still retain to them, and so as I got older and grew up through high school, college, they always provided the educational assistance I needed, but never spoiled me in finances. They always said, if you want something, do it yourself, make your own money, and so that really spurred, since I was 16, 17 years old, on how to make money you know, uh, better, faster, more of it, how to spend it wisely, and how to use my investments to increase my wealth. Um, And then as I got to college and and post-college and uh, my grad school, I had a lot of classmates, coworkers come to me about uh, certain finance advice, and rather than repeating the same advice to individuals, um, I figured to create a website that can share all my personal finance knowledge, and it's grown, you know, about two years since then, uh, but it's grown outside of my network, and a lot of people have picked up on through Google searches, just trying to maximize their finances, and just really happy to see that it connects with a lot of the audience.
1: So why don't you explain what ninja means in terms of personal finances? How do you use ninja techniques to improve your finances in various ways? We're (laughs) going to go into details, but just give us the ninja
2: essence. I'm sorry?
1: Give us the ninja essence of personal finances.
2: Yeah, the, the ninja essence is, you know, there's a lot of personal finance websites out there, and I think that people resonate more with ways you communicate with them, right? How do you inspire? How do you think outside the box when you see personal finance advisors, and you see typical finance blogs, they give really the same advice uh, just in different words, right? And for myself, I'm trying to look at everything you do that comes to finances. How do you, as a ninja, ninja-ize it, right? How do you slice and dice it in a way that hasn't really been thought of before, right? How do you kind of think outside the box and apply these principles to your own finances?
1: Very good. So there's three categories, we're going to go into them all in some great depth. Uh, make it, save it, and spend it. Before we get into some of the details, in general, how do you think Americans are at managing their personal finances? Are they doing pretty well, or do they need a lot of help to improve?
2: I, I would say that, in general, uh, people, I think most people, would need a little help in their personal finances, right? You've seen the statistics out there that there a vast majority of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, There was a study on CNBC that showed, I think, I believe 62% of people didn't even have $500 for an emergency, right? And so we see a lot of bankruptcies happen because people lose their job. They can't pay their mortgage the first month. They have a medical bill that comes up, and they didn't properly save it for. Uh, So I think in general, you know, Americans are smart. But I think that because during school, there wasn't a dedicated personal finance course. So a lot of people, regardless of what their background is, goes into the working world. Uh, without understanding, you know what exactly money is, and how do you actually prepare it for the long term, right? And 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 because of uh, a level of consumerism, we tend to get that first bonus, and it feels good, but we spend it on that car, we spend it on that, that shiny new toy that we see. I, and I don't think a lot of work has been done, you know, except for like a small segment of the population, on how do you, you really utilize that, right? If you get a bonus for ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollars a year, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to spend it on a car, a toy, a vacation, or are you going to portion a, uh, a part of that uh, to your retirement, to your emergency fund, to investments? Uh, there's a lot of things you can do with it to grow your money. Uh, I think that people just need a little bit nudge in the right direction.
1: So let's just understand, before we get into some of the details, your business model, uh, you're recommending various websites and things that can be helpful to people. Are you affiliates to them, just so people can understand your business model?
2: Yeah, so, so I would say that my business model for the site, right, a lot of it comes from ad revenue. There are affili- affiliate uh, relationships along with sponsorships. However, and as you know, Jordan, right, I get maybe 50 to 100 emails a day on affiliate relationships and sponsorships. I only partner with companies that have the same core focus as I do, meaning are these companies and apps and whatever it may be, does it, one, resonate with the audience? Does it help them out in any way, right? So obviously, I get make money on, on, on the, the other end where people sign up for it. But unless there's a meaningful contribution and add value to someone, I won't accept that sponsorship or affiliate. So I, I believe it's a win-win situation because I'm exposing my readers to an app or service that they may not necessarily have heard of before. And at the same time, I get a cut, not necessarily from them, but the company gives me a commission for spotlighting that said service.
1: Very good. Okay, well, let's start off with the making money part. Uh, in addition to the website, you have a blog where you put out various uh, articles on various topics. One of them you did recently is co- talk about how to make money as an Instacart shopper. Uh, you had an undercover experience. Tell us how you can make money as an Instacart shopper.
2: Yeah, yeah. so so I'm, I'm, I'm big into the alternative economy, right? They call it the gig economy, I meaning a lot of people have their nine-to-five jobs Uh, But if you Google side hustling, it's a huge thing now where it's trending where people want to make extra money on the side without being involved with another employer where they have a set schedule and a set calendar to go to work to. So Instacart, like other other apps out there, right? Instacart is mainly a, a shopping app for households who want to order groceries or household items delivered to their home. So Instacart on the other side, think about like as an Uber driver, Jordan, right? You have people who need a ride somewhere. Instead of paying a a traditional taxi company to go, and maybe they go the wrong route, upcharge you for all these additional fees, not take the efficient direct route. Uber comes in with an app that tells you this is the direction you should go. It tells you what you're going to be charged before you accept the ride. And so there's a lot of transparency in that. What Instacart is going to do is for the households, it's convenient for people to order if they don't have time to go to the grocery stores on the weekend. On the flip end, it needs Instacart shoppers, or in other words, Instacart drivers. What these folks do is they will go to these stores, shop for these households requested on the app and deliver it hand-to-hand, end-to-end to their house and get a commission and a tip out of it. So when I did it as an Instacart shopper, I was really curious on one, you know, First, how much does it get paid? Two, what are the nuances with that that you wouldn't necessarily see before you sign up for the program as, as a gig economy worker, or rather as a contractor? And three, is it worth it, right? Because there's some, some apps out there that says, we'll pay you X amount of dollars, and it sounds good at first, but because of all the other expenses they don't tell you about, your net income sometimes even goes below minimum salary. So my whole goal was to look at Instacart as a service if you want to do this as a side hustle, what does it bring in uh, versus what expenses you have to think about?
1: And what did you find? Uh,
2: so I, I, I think it's, uh, it depends. I would say it depends, right? I'm, I'm Boston-based. And so when I did it over a weekend, I believe I did it over three days. Um, I worked, I, I think, seven hours one day, eight hours another day, and, and maybe three or four hours on Sunday. Overall, um, I made about 22 $23 per hour, if I recall correctly. And then if you subtract, you know, the, the gas involved in, um, you know, your contracting fees. So what, what people don't are aware of is, right, if you work for an employer, you're considered a W-2 earner, meaning the employer pays some of your taxes, Social Security, Medicare, and you pay half of that. As a gig economy worker, you pay the whole thing. It's called a self-employment tax. You don't work for Instacart. You're basically a contractor for them, but you're getting paid as a 1099 contractor. Uh, So I subtract those feet, those taxes out. I subtracted the gas out. And so from the 22 or 23 dollars I made, it went down to about 19 dollars per hour. You know, my conclusion is if you're looking for extra money on the weekend, you know, beer money to go with friends, um, extra spending money, it's not a bad gig to go through. Right. And if I was 16, 17 years old or I was in college looking for a summer job, I don't think I'd be working as a uh, you know, when I was in college, I worked as a J. Crew, Banana Republic retail employee at the time it was making $8 per hour. In today's inflation world, it's probably at 12 right now. But I take $19 an hour over 12 any day. Plus, you make your own hours, you work when you want, and you're not set to someone's schedule, right? So if you wanna take a vacation, you can. If you're feeling sick, you know you don't have to worry about calling your boss and, and, and giving no. an excuse that he may or may not believe. So I think you know, as, as, a, as a self-employed person who wants to set their own schedule and, and be their own boss, it's a good opportunity to make extra money. Another
1: way you made extra money was to get your air flight delayed. You said you made about $1,000. Is this a strategy you try to go to, to, to flights that are overbooked so you can collect? How does that work?
2: <laughs> well, I, so so to be completely candid here, when I was younger, uh, and when I say that in my undergrad in college, I remember instead of going to a Thanksgiving at home, I used to look for, you know, there's various uh, apps around. This was like around 2004, 2005. I try to look for overbooked flights around Thanksgiving. And, you know, the airlines actually purposely oversell their flights, knowing that there's going to be a certain percentage of people who won't show up at the airport, right? So they try to oversell it. During Thanksgiving, Christmas, the major holidays, they oversell a lot more because they know that a lot of people's plans change. So I look for these uh, airplane seats that are vastly oversold, book a ticket there and show up at the airport, and what happens more often than not back then was that they were oversold, and actually, more people than not than they predicted showed for the flight. So it turned out, let's, you know, for example, they had 100 seats to sell, and now 110 people showed up. So, to get rid of the extra 10 people to be at capacity instead of overcapacity, they will offer passengers a certain set of money to not take that flight and wait for the next flight available. So what I would do is I would volunteer for these delayed flights, and you can actually do it over and over, right? So I agreed to take a next flight at, say, 6 p.m. I'd rather take it 7.30. At 7.30, looking for more people who would volunteer to not book that flight. So I would take the 9 o'clock, then the 12 o'clock. And I believe I did it for three different things given. You know, my parents were not really happy at the time, but I made over, I believe, $7,000 from doing that.
1: So how can you tell in advance which flights are overbooked, you have a bet- better chance of having that work for you.
2: Yeah, so there, there's two two ways, right? I haven't done this in a while because I'll, I'll go over like the, the trip delay that you were talking about, Jordan, how I made a thousand dollars. There's two different ways. One is when you look at uh, airfares, right? And this is like the bare bones method is you look at the airfares and uh, kind of go through a dummy booking. And as you go through the dummy book and select your seat, you can see or gauge how full it is depending on how many seats have already been assigned, right? And that's not, always accurate because sometimes people book air flight tickets where they'll actually book in the seat. Um, there are apps out there. Uh, you know, one of them is Expert Flyer. It does tell you the capacity of certain flights. And so if you look at that and you see the capacity at zero or negative, right? then you know that the flight's oversold by X amount of people. And then you can basically – it's a gamble. Right? It's not guaranteed, but you can gamble and book that ticket with the hopes that there are going to be volunteers needed to – um, take
1: another flight because it's over overbooked. Very smart. Definitely a ninja way of making money.
2: Yeah. Right, we're
1: yep. we're, we're going to take a, a break here. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Pham. He is The Money Ninja. Uh, you can find out more about him at his website, themoneyninja.com. We'll be back after this. If you're like me, when you think back to the financial crash of 2008, it's easy to be understandably worried about another potential drop. You and I work hard for our savings, and we want to make sure a portion of it is protected if and when turbulent financial times come back again. Imagine yourself being able to easily have a portion of your savings protected from market volatility and owning the world's oldest and most trusted form of exchange. Gold provides financial freedom, allowing you to save outside the banking sector in a private way, in a trusted way, and anywhere in the world, vaulted offers a way for you to buy gold very easily, easy to buy it, easy to sell it, unrivaled value, and incredibly low costs, along with unmatched security. All through, they do an easy. To, they use an easy-to-use web app, which allows you to purchase and save in gold at the tap of a finger. You get higher returns in the long run with gold compared to stocks alone. If you'd invested a thousand dollars. In a portfolio of 75% stocks and 25% gold 50 years ago, with annual rebalancing, you'd get about a 10% rate of return that's higher than if you did it on stocks alone. And compared to a 70-30 stocks, 70% bonds, 30% portfolio, your total return would be almost 40% higher, including that gold in that portfolio. When stocks go down, historically, gold has the tendency to appreciate. Thus, a balanced portfolio of stocks and gold has a significantly lower risk of a larger drop, as illustrated by what happened back in 2008. By adding some gold to your portfolio, you can cut your long-term risk almost in half. Gold allows you to be your own bank. Banking systems have withdrawal restrictions. Bail-ins and bank failures, they're just not your concern if you're an owning of gold. You can buy and sell gold at your own convenience. If this is why you want investment in gold, it's truly going to complete your portfolio while at the same time giving you access to stored value whenever you desire. Sign up today for an account to get the gold you need at vaulted.com backslash money answers. That's vaulted.com backslash money answers.
3: Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, Invest in the internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, Come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life.
4: Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog?
1: Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Fam. He is known as the Money Ninja. You can find out more about him at his website, themoneyninja.com. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you, Jordan. We were just talking about getting paid for uh, being delayed on air flights. You
2: said you can combine that with your credit card somehow. Explain that. Yeah. So I think you know a lot of people have credit cards, right? And they they love the miles and points. One of the things they don't realize about these credit card, uh, you know, American Express, Chase, Bank of America, is there's other benefits out there, but you have to read the fine print to understand them, right? So one of them that uh, a few of these cards have, they call it a trip delay insurance. So what that is is cards like American Express Platinum, Chase Sapphire Reserve, Chase Sapphire Preferred, if your flight is delayed by six to twelve hours, depending on the program, or that the flight is delayed overnight, they will actually pay you $500 per person for incidentals and expenses. And so on one of these trips where my wife and I were had a layover in Washington, DC, that layover turned to be an overnight. Well, a lot of people would actually just pay for their own hotel, get maybe some comp from the airline itself. But through the credit card program, what you do is just get like a little paper that says that this delay is due to the airline, not because you missed your flight. And from there, whether you book your hotel, you buy clothes, you eat out, or you go shopping or whatever it may be, right? You buy extra battery for your cell phone or whatever it may be, is that they will reimburse you $500 per person. So knowing that, my wife and I spent, you know, overnight, and then we extended that flight the next day rather than flying in the morning. We said, why not fly in the afternoon or at night just to enjoy Washington, D.C. for, for, for one full day? And we ate out for a breakfast, lunch, dinner. We bought clothes to spend around during that day. We booked a hotel booked a rental car, and saved all the receipts. By the time we got home, we submitted all the receipts on the online form that these credit card uh, providers uh, give online. And once you submit it, um, their insurance carrier that they partner with kind of looks through the documents to make sure it's legit, and they will pay you that $500 per person directly to your bank account. So when I did that, I maximized – I think I, we spent like $1,025, right? So in the end of it, we got $1,000 reimbursed and only $25 out of pocket to spend – you know, an overnight stay in Washington, D.C. and kind of enjoy as a tourist without paying really anything out of pocket.
1: Great. Very, very good strategy. Very ninja-like, I must say. Okay, let's go to some other topics. You talk about the best places to put your savings. Now, people, for the most part, keep their money in a savings account or checking account pretty much earning zero these days. How can you earn a better deal than 0% on your savings these days?
2: So I would say... There's many ways. So you're right. Uh, savings accounts and money market accounts right now are earned like a very paltry sum, right? And so you're not going to make enough money to even beat inflation at this point. And depending on when you need your money, right? Because that, that, that also answers the question is if you need it within the next two, three months, some of these strategies don't make any sense. But if you don't need the cash to be extremely liquid in the near term, there are other opportunities out there, right? So from, from, if we start on the safer route, Uh, there's a lot of non-traditional banks out there. And so what I mean by that is not your Santander, Bank of America, the big banks. There's digital banks uh, or like these hybrid banks. Uh, example I have is Chime, uh, Axon Bank. Um, There's a few of them online that I showed on my website, the the page that you looked, where they're paying at least 10 to 30 times the interest rate that these traditional financial institutions provide, right? And so you can supercharge your savings that way, in uh, the more, I would say, riskier side is there are instruments out there outside of a savings or checking account that you put your money in. One of them is, is cryptocurrency. So I'm not talking about Bitcoin or Ethereum, but they are known. these virtual currencies are known as stable coins. And so they're called stable coins because these virtual or digital currency is tied to a fiat currency like the U.S. dollar. So there's less risk of it being so volatile because it's tied to an actual physical um, value that the government provides, and it provides an outsized interest rate. So right now, like I said, I have um, a little bit of money, and I think I put it on my website. I put $20,000 down in this account uh, on BlockFi, and I haven't invested on a stable coin that's tied to the U.S. dollar, giving me 8.6% interest APY. So, you know, compared to what you're getting for savings or checking nowadays, which is probably 0.1, you're getting a really significant growth um, put in, in in an account that far exceeds what a traditional bank account would give you. What's so the name of that stable coin that you have it in getting 8%? Yep, it's called GUSD. So it's a Gemini USD. It's backed by the Thinker Wasp brothers, um, and those are the billionaire brothers who, you know, you may have heard of. They Gemini, actually put, Gemini, right.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm sorry? Gemini is what they found. Yes, right? yes, correct, yep. I see, very good. All right, good Good tip there. Okay, now also when you open a bank account, there are various bonuses that you can get, both bank accounts and brokerage accounts. Why do banks do this and, and what kind of deals are available out there?
2: Yeah, so banks have done this for a long time. Even though I was in college, I recall going to uh, the, the dining room, right, and there's a lot of kids who work for these banks offer and sign up for these savings account, sign up this checking account and get a free t-shirt and get a free barbecue set. When I was 21 years old, I'm like, great, that's a good deal. You know, give me a free barbecue set. I'm a poor college student. Now that I've kind of worked in the financial space for a while, I realize that's really peanuts, right? A lot of banks really want to get customers and they spend a lot of money trying to get these acquire customers, whether through TV commercials, radio commercials, online, Google ad spend. And so by providing a bonus, right? So, Banks will give you anywhere from $100 to $1,000, $3,000 to open up accounts. Um, And they have some requirements, right? Direct deposit $1,000 within the first three months, something like that. But once you complete these qualifications, they will give you the bonus money directly to you, to your bank. Uh, And the reason why is exactly what I said. They're willing to pay to acquire new customers and establish a a long-term relationship with these new customers and it's actually cheaper than paying for a TV ad or Google ad long-term. So you don't mind paying a user, a customer directly $600 versus spending thousands, thousands of dollars acquiring a, um, to a mass campaign. What are
1: some of your favorite deals right now that, or that banks are offering for signup bonuses? Uh,
2: so, you know, I, I keep an Excel list of everything I've done. The, the latest one I did that is the chase $500 bonus. So with chase bank, if you open an account and deposit $5,000 into their savings account and $10,000 to the checking account, they will give you $500 after three months. Uh, and what's good about this, Jordan, I mentioned before, is these aren't one-time bonuses. These are only available to new customers. However, all banks, or I would say most banks, consider you a new customer as long as you haven't had an account in the last 12 to 24 months. So you can actually churn this, meaning sign up for an account, get the bonus, And then if you don't like the bank or whatever reason you're not interested in having a relationship with them, you can cancel that account, wait the 12, 24 months, and repeat the same procedure. But because there's so many bonuses out there, I mean, a given person can make, I would say, conservatively $10,000, up to $20,000 per person in just getting bank bonuses every single year.
1: Very good. And then you also have uh, apps that give you cash back uh, as a way of saving money. What are some of your favorites in that the cash back? category. Yeah,
2: absolute favorite ones right now. It depends on what I'm doing. But for shopping online, I love a, an app called Mr. Rebates or Rackerton. It used to be called Mr. Ebates. They give you a cash back percentage based on the amount that you spend. For instance, if you spend $100, some popular retailers, Home Depot, J Crew, Gap, Best Buy, they'll give you 3%, 8% back of the $100 you spend. If I'm going out to a restaurant, there's a really good app called Seated and essentially what you do is you go to a restaurant, you pay for your meal like you normally do, and all you have to do with this app is take a picture of your receipt, and Seated will give you between 20 to 50% of what you spent back as cash back rewards. Uh, Go ahead.
1: So this is a marketing
2: technique for restaurants? Yeah, Uh, it's trying to get new new customers, right? I mean, uh, let's think about this. On Monday when it's slow, and you're not getting a lot of foot traffic, they rather pay, give a commission to seated to get more uh, people in the door, and they don't mind paying that 20%, 50% rewards because getting 50% half of something is better than getting 0% of nothing, right? And so they're trying to up it during, like, the low traffic areas or low traffic times.
1: And what would be some other of your cashback apps that you would like?
2: Yeah, so that that one's for restaurants. I talk about Mr. Rebates for Shopping. Uh, GetUpside is an app that's, like, two, three years old. And it gives you cash back for your gas when you fill up your car and also when you go grocery shopping. Um, I made a ton of money on this because you're saving uh, between 30 to $0.45 cents per gallon typically. And sometimes you can add additional promo codes, which I have my website, that you can get up to $2, $3 back per gallon. So in some instances, you're getting gas for almost free or 20 $0.30 cents per gallon because of this cash back rewards. And not only that, they encourage people to spread the word. So every person you refer, you get a bonus to your account. So there's five, if you refer five friends, that's an extra dollar fifty back in rewards, right? And so just this month, I made about $20,000 just referring this to my website. People sign up. They're saving from gas money, but I also get that, what uh, I would call it the referral bonus for that portion.
1: Amazing. You've got a lot of great techniques. We're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Pham. He's known as the Money Ninja. A lot of interesting techniques we've already talked about. We have many more to go. Uh, You can find out more about him at his website, themoneyninja.com. We'll be back after this.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answers Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Pham. He is known as the Money Ninja. You can find out more about all the techniques we're talking about at his website, themoneyninja.com. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you, Jordan. We were talking about cash-back apps, and one you wanted to mention in particular is a way of getting cash back on buying groceries. Tell me about that one.
2: Yeah, so the the app is called Fetch, F-E-T-C-H, Fetch Rewards, and it's just like the an app I mentioned before, Seated, right? When you go shopping for groceries, um, save your receipt, scan your receipt with this app, and it'll give you cash-back uh, get cash back rewards, points that you convert to cash. Uh, and also, if you pick certain brands they sponsor with, they'll give you additional bonus points on that. So it's another way to earn money on money that you're gonna, on things that you're going to spend anyways.
1: There are so many of these apps out there. Is there one way to consolidate them all so you don't have 50 different apps on your, your phone? To, is there some kind of easy way to consolidate all this in one place?
2: It, it's tough, right? Because all these apps are owned by individual companies, and they all specialize in certain things. So just like credit cards where – certain cards will give you more cash back on gas or restaurants. It's the same thing with apps Jordan, where if you know what you're gonna do that day, you just gotta, it's easy, right? Because you have these apps on your phone. It's not something physical you have to carry in addition and then fill up your pockets. It just getting into that financial mindset and making sure that you just scan the receipt with the proper app and get the rewards that way. So there is, to answer your question, there isn't a consolidated app. Um, you just have to find out what the best apps for doing certain things is and just be consistent.
1: Yeah. You also talk about refinancing your mortgage. Now, mortgage rates are low. They're higher than they were maybe a year or so ago. But when does it make sense to refinance your mortgage in today's market?
2: Yeah, and this is a big thing, right? Because I, I feel that mortgage refinancing is kind of that black hole where people know what it is, but they're too nervous to to dip their toes in, right? And they're like, "What is it worth it or not? What kind of paperwork are we going to do? I would say overall with mortgage refinancing, especially in today's low mortgage rate, you always, always want to check to see if you're going to save money. And the easiest way to find out if it's worth it or not is you got to find your break-even point. And the break-even point, is it breaks down to a simple statement, right? Is how many months will it take you to recoup the refinancing costs from your monthly mortgage payments? So for example, something simple, right? Is if you're saving $100 in your mortgage payment per month, that means after a year, you're going to save 1,200. And then let's say that to refinance your mortgage with, the, with whatever bank that you go into, they charge you $1,000, right? And so that means you know that after 10 months of uh, $100 lower mortgage payment, you're going to recoup that application and mortgage fee. And then after the 10th month, this is all extra money that you would have lost if you had not refinanced, right? So you always want to see what is my total cost for refinancing and then how many months will it take me to recoup that cost back? And depending on how long you stay at your house, you know, sometimes you can recoup your money immediately, but if it's going to take you 18 months to recoup your, your fees, you just have to ask yourself, am I going to stay at this house for longer than a year and a half? If you are, totally makes sense to refinance. If you're not, you're planning to move, then it's better to stay at the rate that you're currently at.
1: Yeah. What would you say about people who are caught up in, in bidding wars for homes today? You'll put a house on the market and they'll have 100 bids in an hour, some crazy thing. As a personal finance expert, what advice do you give to buyers who are in this crazy, overheated market?
2: <laughs> I tell the same thing to my brother, right? He's looking for a, a suburban area, and I would just say, wait. I think the market's overheated because of a confluence of multiple things, right? COVID-19, the pandemic, people want to go to the, the, the suburban rural areas, Um, now because the pandemic, there's a shortage of lumber, there's a shortage of steel, boosting the cost of these raw materials, right? So you have two things going against it. You have record low inventory, so there's not enough houses in the market to satisfy the demand. On the other end is not enough houses being built because the construction costs are so expensive at this point in time, right? And so eventually the market will adjust like it always does. But right now, if you want to buy a house, like you said, I just heard a story Ah, uh, recently, where one house had over 100 cash offer bids, and and people are you know writing like uh, letters to the homeowners, given the name rights to the first baby. It's just a crazy market right now. <laughs> and if you want to buy something, you're going to expect to not only overpay the the listing price, but you need to you know forego inspection uh, requirements or other things just to make your bid more appealing. It's just the wrong time to buy. Maybe in the city where the prices are a little bit more stable or actually decrease a little bit, right? Because everyone wants bigger space. But other than that, um, I give this advice to my brother, right? Mortgage rates, there's too many things going on right now that it doesn't hurt to buy, wait to buy. Uh, It may not be 2007, 2008, where the mortgage uh, crisis was due to certain lenders, you know, being a predator for during the rates and stuff. But here we're just looking at too many things going against a potential home buyer today. Um, I would say wait until the market cools off a little bit, see where we're heading, and then at least you're not bidding, you know, between nine, ten, eleven different people, and everyone making bids that are fifty thousand, six thousand dollars over the selling price.
1: Do you think this is going to end badly? Is what you're saying?
2: I don't. I don't know if it's going to be a bubble. Uh, it's hard to say if it's a bubble. I don't think it's going to be the same as what we saw in 2009, right? That was caused to people being approved for houses they shouldn't even be able to afford. Here, I think it's just because of uh, pandemic. The inventory shortages will be a bubble. i I don't I really don't know, but I do think that housing prices will cool off. Yeah, let's
1: talk about the stock market a little bit. Uh, in the long run, that's probably the way most people make most of their money. Are you an advocate of index funds or individual stocks? If so, how would you pick individual stocks for somebody who's not a real expert at this?
2: Yeah, so I, I know that a lot of people have probably looked in the news lately. In saw like a lot of younger kids making millions uh, buying AMC and GameStock. I would say that's like a short-term phenomena. Uh, long-term, right? I would recommend to put most of your money in index funds. They don't cost that much in terms of fees. And they beat out, I think, I believe, over 90% of active mutual funds, right? So long-term, if you're getting eight, 9%, that's good. It's not like crazy great like you see in Bitcoins or, or AMC or GameStock. But those things are extremely volatile. And for every story millionaire that you read, there's the people on the other end who lost millions of dollars on this, right? And so if you want long-term appreciable gains, the best thing you can do for your financial future is put most of your money into index funds. Now, if you want to bet a little bit, you heard about this individual stock, right? And and maybe this was like 2012, and you're like, oh, I heard Facebook's going to be great. You really believe in the company. You want to invest in some money? Sure. It doesn't, you know, I, I never... Go against someone, want to put 1%, 2%, 5% of their money into an individual stock and bet that way. But I would say the vast majority of money should be an index fund that will grow consistently for you.
1: And do you have, uh, you're talking about mutual funds, you're talking about exchange-traded funds. How would you do an index if you want to do an index fund?
2: Yeah, I w- for index funds, it's, it's uh, I would recommend two companies with very low fees, right? Either Fidelity index funds or uh, Vanguard index funds. And from there, depending on your age and, you know, retirement goals and when you want to retire, how many years you have working left, there's different index funds in there, Jordan, right? I would recommend that if you had a bucket of money, put maybe 50 to 60% of that. As, as I'm speaking as a 39-year-old. Um, I would put about 60% of my money into domestic index funds. So those are companies that, that I mean, funds that track the United States, companies in the United States, 60% of that. Then I would use maybe 20 to 30% on foreign companies. So you bet an international on these index funds. And then maybe 5 and 10% in bond funds. You know, and usually those will go inverse of the market, which means that the stock market crashes or goes down. Bond funds usually go up. So it's almost like a little buffer um, from, from the volatility of the stock market.
1: And what would proportion would you put into cryptocurrency for a long-term investor? Not a, a day trader, but somebody long-term. Do you think crypto's... Makes sense as part of a long-term portfolio. It depends on if you believe in it, right?
2: I mean, crypto in cryptocurrency is such a new space, and there are a lot of people that have Bitcoins, Ethereum, Dogecoin, and those are speculators, right? They're they're betting on the price going higher without really understanding what cryptocurrencies are. Um, if you're talking about total retirement portfolio. And you believe in the virtual currency, the, the blockchain technology behind it. There are extremely good use, use cases for them. So you believe in technology. Uh, I would say five to ten percent of your total uh, available capital is appropriate. But again, right, it depends on why you're investing for. It. If you're investing because you're looking for that next month double up money, like a lot of people are looking for now, I wouldn't say that's a good idea. But if you're going to accept the very high possibility that this is going to swing wildly up and down throughout the time you hold it until we figure out what the long-term future holds, then I don't see, I see five ten 10% as being appropriate. Yeah. And
1: um, amongst that, would you buy uh, a variety or would you put it all into Bitcoin? Which of the cryptos would you uh, favor for the, the it, Bitcoin part of your portfolio?
2: Yeah. I, I would say the only two that I'm really, um, that I'm really confident in long-term is either Bitcoin or Ethereum. I wouldn't do Dogecoin. You know, it was created as a meme stock. I believe it's still going to be a meme stock. Uh, And, you know, a fact that people don't know is for Dogecoin, the inflation is going to be ridiculous. Every minute that that passes, another 10,000 Dogecoins are created. So that's 15 million per day. So you need a lot of demand to keep that price up. Otherwise, the supply is just going to overburden the demand and the price will come crashing down, right? With the other two crypto I talked about, Bitcoin, it's limited to 21 million coins. It would never be more than 21 million coins the way it was programmed. So right now, there's 19 million circulation. There's going to be about two more million coins that's going to be mined and available in the next two, three years. But beyond that, it's never going to be created anymore. So there's no inflation risk for that, right? And people are using this as an investment tool, which I I, I, I get that. Um, on the other side is there's Ethereum. That, that has about 96 million coins at this point in time, and there's about five new coins created every 15 seconds. So better than Dogecoin where they're not having a 1,000 thousand coins being released every minute. Um, but it's also consistent inflation, right? It's fixed. So you don't have a government coming in, printing money when they need it, or printing less money when they don't need it, right? You know exactly how many new coins are being created every minute of the day, and it's limited in scope. So not like Dogecoin, uh, and the other thing I like about it is smart contracts that's available, right? Which has a lot of implications down the road.
1: Yeah. Uh, you also talk about starting your own business, uh, the legal and tax considerations for doing that. When does it make sense to start a business, whether it be a subchapter S or an LLC, as opposed to running it a sole <laughs> proprietorship?
2: Yeah, I, I would say that most people who start a business, uh, you know, they turn their hobby to a profit enterprise. I would say. For most people at that stage, it's probably best to form an LLC, a limited liability company. Uh, Nothing's really changed from a tax status for that. It just really creates a different legal entity. So in case you get sued uh, or something happens to the company and another corporation comes after you, they can only come after the assets of your startup and not your personal finances, right? So it's a legal protection. But in terms of taxes, it acts the same way as if you were acting as a sole proprietorship, right? You get your self-employment taxes and you get taxed at your personal income level. For an S-corp, I would say it makes sense there if you're making over $100,000 in net income per year. That's the time where you probably want to switch the LLC to an S-corporation, which just means it's a different tax uh, entity. And the reason why it's beneficial for these people is, let's get an example that you made $100,000 a year. Right? If you were an LLC or a sole proprietorship, you get taxed, self-employment tax, which is the Social Security and the Medicare, both for the employee and the employer. Because you work for yourself, you're paying both that sides, right? So that's like 15, a little bit over 15%. And if you make $100,000, that's already $15,000 they can take away from you from self-employment taxes. With okay. an S-Corp, what an S-Corp allows you to do is pay yourself a reasonable wage but anything beyond your reasonable wage, you can pay yourself a dividend, and that dividend does not get taxed. So an an example there is $100,000. You want to pay yourself a reasonable salary, Say you get paid $50,000 in that, right? So you get taxed at $50,000. The remaining $50,000, if you pay yourself as a dividend, those are all tax-free from a corporation standpoint.
1: Yes, very good. Okay, we're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Pham. He is the money ninja. And you can find out more about all the strategies we're talking about at his website, TheMoneyNinja.com. We'll be back after this.
4: From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network.
5: Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? own it outright in five to seven years call truth and equity 888-262-5540 or visit truth eight 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 two six two five five four zero. 888-262-5540 jordan goodman is an affiliate he recognizes quality solutions
0: forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Pham. He is the Money Ninja. His website is themoneyninja.com. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you, Jordan. So people can spend a lot of time trying to figure out the best credit card and how to use miles and points, it's almost like a full-time profession for some people. How can they make sense of that and get the best programs and max out on these points and rewards?
2: Yeah, so I, I would say, you know, there's there's really two big uh, competitors in the space right now, right? It's American Express with the membership rewards points and they're in, in Chase with their ultimate rewards points. And because you earn points through different categories, the levels is a little bit different there's so much confusion on how to best redeem them, right? And most people redeem them the the easy, straightforward way, which is not always the best way. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, Right now, the Chase Preferred card, they're giving people 100,000 points as a sign-up bonus when you sign up and spend $4,000 within the first three months, right? And that 100,000 points, if you were to say, okay, I want to change those points to cash, you can actually go to the Chase website now and... Chase will value each point at one cent each. So 100,000 points at one cent is $1,000. So you can actually go online and say, hey, I want the cash, take the $1,000 and that's it. Not a bad return, essentially it's like 1% cash back card, but not the greatest. If you're a traveler, you know, for instance, the, uh, Chase has a travel portal where you can book hotels, um, airlines, anything that's travel-related, and they actually boost the value of that to 25% more than it's worth it than if you were taking cash out. So that 100,000 points at 1.25 cents cash back is really worth now $1,250, right? So you're getting $250 more. Now, to supercharge that, or really supercharge that is, and it's a little more convoluted, there's websites that will, will help you in this, like Fly Talk or The Points Guy, is you can take that same 100,000 points, Transfer that to an airline mileage program. So, for example, United Mileage Plus—they have a miles program there. You change your hundred thousand points to hundred thousand miles. Those hundred thousand miles are good enough for a one-way business class round uh, ticket to Europe or Asia, and you'll still have miles left over. And those business class tickets are worth—you know—could be worth up to four thousand, five thousand, six thousand dollars. So, not only are you flying essentially for free. But you would save, you know, if you were to spend $5,000 in business class flight, you're saving $5,000 versus getting that $1,000 cash back if you did the traditional method, right? So depending on what your priorities are, if you don't need the cash back and you're looking to travel, especially after the pandemic, and you're looking to save money on traveling, this is a really awesome way to do something that you normally wouldn't do, right? Because I know a lot of people wouldn't pay $4,000, $5,000 on, on a business class flight. But if they can convert their points to miles and do it that way, redeem a reward that way, I think a lot of people would change their mind really quickly.
1: Is it a good idea to consolidate your spending on one or two cards? Because you can get 13 different cards, all with different programs, and have all the rewards spread all over the place. You never get to cash in on anything
2: yeah it's not good to spread if you're not if you don't spend so much in your credit cards it's not good to spread across all these credit card programs however it doesn't hurt to sign up for multiple cards under the same card issuer right so american Express and chase they have many different cards out there so maybe you sign up for the preferred card today get those bonus points and get those like category spending bonuses and then you were ready to spend on another credit card or your wife wants to sign up for the same credit card program well, you can combine those points as long as they're within the same issuer and uh, earn points or miles a lot faster than you normally would with just one card. So, yes, I totally agree with you. Don't spread your, your, your wings too far where you're having like 16 programs to manage and you don't have enough points to, to redeem. But sign up for credit cards within the same ecosystem. Absolutely makes sense.
1: We talked a little bit about the gig economy. What is the future of the gig economy? Are many more people going to be working for Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and Instacart? Is this going to be a
2: really continuing, uh,
1: growing trend?
2: I think it's here to stay. I think it's, you know, whether it's going to be here to stay as a a side hustle for some folks or a full-fledged business for others, um, I think it's extremely viable, right? I mean, you have people who leave their full-time job to become an Airbnb host where they're buying properties and letting people rent that through that, right? there's other people who, instead of driving for Uber or, or uh, Instacart, um, they're having like a business where, you know, for example, Amazon, they have these last mile trucks that you can create your own business. They buy a business, they buy 15 trucks, hire a bunch of drivers to deliver these Amazon packages to people's door and make money as a, a self-employed individual that way. So I think, it's in the, you know, gig economy will morph There's going to be apps that come and go or different ideas that will get out of business and new ones that pop up. But I think in general, the gig economy is here to stay. It will offer flexibility that I didn't have during my time when I was younger. And I think a lot of people who kind of grew up in this kind of world are, one, very used to using it. But on the flip side is they can actually make viable income or businesses through these methods.
1: Coming out of the pandemic, uh, a lot of people are stuck at home uh, but they got caught by various kinds of frauds and scandals. Uh, what are some of the things you saw, and and what should people be watching out for as far as getting uh, bamboozled by all the people out there trying to take your money online?
2: I, I, I would say just just use a lot of careful common sense, right? And I've seen a lot of these emails that come out. They have like these what they call phishing emails, where the link and like the logo of um, a company looks real enough and they entice the email reader to click on the link and provide their login credentials and passwords because they think they'll log into the the real site. Um, but if you hover over links, usually if it's not BankofAmerica.com, for instance, and it's a bunch of, like, unintelligible uh, code, then you know it's someone trying to mimic a website, right, to get your login credentials. Um, other things you want to watch out for is always, if, if, if something is too good to be true, Always do a double-take, right? Research, make sure that it's something you understand, that's something you're comfortable with. Don't look for these get-rich-quick schemes. Most of the time, I mean, uh, 99% of the time, it's, it's not real, right? Um, I would just say use common sense. Be proactive and in investigating the companies that you're that you're potentially going to do business with or create a relationship with. Just be careful overall. I mean, scams have existed pre-pandemic. It's gone a lot worse because people are home. They're on the computers more, um, and they're more susceptible to to being exposed to these scams.
1: Yeah, uh, you're a big believer in personal finance education. That's part of what you're doing. What is your assessment of the state of personal finance education? I think something like 17 states now require it to require it to uh, graduate from high school. But what is yep. your assessment of the state of personal finance education these days?
2: I, I think it's getting better than it was a decade ago. I think we have a long way to go. Right. Uh, when when you talk about you know, to, 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 I guess, finance experts, they view mortgage refinancing, stock investments, um, cryptocurrency or, or credit card rewards as something kind of simplistic, but it's really not. And it requires either research done online through yourself, reading books or hearing it through friends. Right. And I think that we need to do a better job as Americans to teach younger folks what personal finance is and how to manage it, the expectations, how to invest it better, what are our financial instruments out there that can help them in achieving their financial goals when they get older. Uh, so I, we're heading in the right direction. But we have a long way to go, right? I mean, we have other countries out there that are saving and investing a lot better than we have. We have the advantage of having a great diversified economy, a good job market, even now that we can have a pandemic and relatively high incomes compared to developing uh, the del- 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 excuse me, developing world. But with that high income, there isn't that education that backs it up. And so I want those two things to merge, right? We have a great economy. Let's get the great economy and combine that with great financial education so Americans are more stable as they get older.
1: In summing up, what difference will it make in people's lives if they take a lot of the money ninja advice and implement a lot of things we've talked about for the last hour?
2: Yeah. So I would tell, I, I tell everyone this, right? That everyone always wants to make more money, but people don't necessarily think or realize that saving money is the same thing as making money, right? If you and I are making hundred dollars, but you go out to eat at a restaurant and you go to the grocery store and you spend all the hundred dollars, you're left with zero, right? Essentially you're living paycheck to paycheck. I have that same exact $100, but because I'm using these cashback apps, I'm using all these rebate programs. I'm using all these saving tips and tools I'm still getting $100 worth of restaurant food and groceries, but I'm maybe only spending $60, $70 out of pocket, leaving me with $30 extra. So what I'm really trying to say is that person that's saving $30, that other person who spent all $100 would actually have to make $130 to make the same level of savings as the person who is being smart with their finances. So my, my, my really message to people is don't always think about how to make more money. Think about how to save more money because saving money and making money is the same.
1: Very good. Well, thanks so much. We've got a lot of great advice from uh, our guest this, this uh, hour, John Pham. Uh, he is known as the Money Ninja. Uh, a lot of what we talked about today and much more is on his website, uh, which is at themoneyninja.com. Thanks so much. We learned an awful lot this last hour, John. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate being here. Thank you, everyone. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now.